As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Ronika Jacobs, and you found my podcast, Drive for More, Your Best Life Now. While there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, you've taken the time out to listen to this one. So for that, I would like to say thank you. So without any further delay, let's get to it. Let's strive for more. Wheeler is helping people strive for more in the area of money management. Bob is a financial expert, motivator, and the author of The Money Nerve. He helps people create healthy relationships with money. Through his accounting practice, he has created new approaches to personal finance. In this episode, Bob will help listeners conquer their money shame and avoid making poor financial decisions by teaching how emotions can dictate our choices. Hi, Bob. Welcome. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here, Onika. Thank you for having me. The talk of money and is such a hot topic. There's so many different directions that a conversation about money could go. It's truly interesting, um, you know, and everyone has their own feelings about money. Well, they do, and that's the great thing about money is, or what I find is most people want to have the good conversations like, I just got a raise, I just won the lottery, but nobody's saying, right. hey, look at me, I've got $100,000 worth of debt and I just filed bankruptcy. <laughs> Come sit with right. me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and that makes people kind of go like, ooh, okay, right. <laughs> but not knowing that, actually the thing that they probably don't want to say, right? And, Bob, you know this, that they may be in the same boat. (laughs) Well, you know, that's the biggest thing I find when I do workshops and when I do speaking engagements. The biggest thing people say at the end of the conversation is, I thought I was the only one, and they don't feel so alone because there's so many people out there. You're looking at a snapshot of their life thinking, oh, I want to live that life, but I see the background. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) 
right. So what attracted you to the field of accounting? Well, you know, here's the funny thing. I actually took accounting because it was an easy A, and I was just doing it to help my grade point average. Uh, I was actually going to go to law school. I wanted to be a lawyer, and then I met some lawyers, and I thought, yeah, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it was just something that came easy to me, and so I, I stuck with it because, gosh, this is easy. It didn't even feel like work. Hmm. Didn't really feel like work. Even like, I mean, it's a lot of numbers and that. I mean, you've got to be really organized. You do. Well, and see, that's the interesting thing is um, accounting is also a lot of logic. It's organization. It's logic. It's two plus two is a waste four. If it's not, there's a reason. It's, very, it's a very closed system in that it, it's, it's always going to balance. And I liked that. When I was younger, I needed, I needed things that balanced. <laughs> No, I understand that. As they always say, numbers don't lie. <laughs> That's they what don't. they say. <laughs> well, you're a you finance know. expert, okay? How yep. and why did you get involved in comedy and then become the CFO of the world-famous comedy store? Well, it's a crazy story. So, you know, all accountants are just, you know, by nature comics, right? So, <laughs> so um, I, I was, you know, I was – I was dabbling in comedy and realizing that I probably wasn't going to get discovered uh, doing comedy in, in the accounting offices of the accounting firm that I worked for. And uh, so I started doing comedy, and I was actually doing, doing, um, doing quite okay. I was getting laughs. And I was doing comedy at the comedy store. And what happened was I got a call from the owner, Mitzi, who was saying to me, you've got to come help the comedy store. We're, we're having some financial struggles. And because a lot of my friends were comics, I was a comic, I wanted to make sure we had a stage to perform on, I was like, okay, I'll help. And I've been, I've been there 22 years, and so I guess I was doing something right because, you know, the club's still around, and it's still cranking out amazing comics around the world. So That's awesome. So something unique happened to you while you were in Africa that changed your belief around money. Can you share what happened with the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I ended up taking a, tra a trip to um, Tanzania and Kenya. And what happened was when I was in Tanzania, um, you know, I had gone there and I grew up with the belief that, you know, we're not happy unless we have lots of material things and you had to, um, you're only successful if you're accumulating wealth and that was the way to fulfillment. And when I was in Tanzania, the average income there at the time was about $100 a year, annual, 100 bucks, And these people were incredibly happy. And they were incredibly giving and very charitable. And I just I kept looking at them because they'd say, tell all your friends if you had a good time, tell your friends, bring all your friends to Tanzania. And I'm looking at them going, how can you be happy? You're, you're living in um, unair-conditioned huts, um, you have to walk everywhere. You're, you know, you just don't like. You don't have a nice car. Like, how can you be happy? And it was really a mind. You know, it messed with my mind um, because these people were truly happy people. And what I came to realize on my way home, because I was just so blown away by this concept of being happy without having material wealth, um, I just it really made me recognize that they were just coming from a place of gratitude and that they were just coming from a place of let's all be happy and it just was very humbling and 
I realized there's more to life than just trying to accumulate things because these people clearly have not quote unquote accumulated things the way in the U.S. we would say they should do it. But what they did have was an amazing community. Um, they had uh, just a generosity about them, and it just I just you know I love Africa so. The people there, whatever countries I go to, they are just the most amazing, gracious, grateful people. Yeah, well, talk about, yes, the total opposite of the American value system <laughs> and that whole American dream yeah. concept that we have. Yeah, it's like in America, that's what we preach. is, And even mm-hmm. when I've talked to various people who, like, you know, you ask, foreigners like why, why did you come to the United States and they say the American dream and that yeah. that's the way they see us it's all about material wealth the big house the fancy car nice clothes eating at fine restaurants golfing at the finest golf clubs vacations you know I mean that's that's really how they see us it's interesting <laughs> yeah no it totally is and I think I think we could learn from countries like some of the countries in Africa, where I think it's all where it's more about community, where it's more about connection, and I think in our country we've gotten so first world that we're able to isolate from each other because we can just build a fence or move to another neighborhood, and what they've learned to do is actually work together and 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 make it work. Um, and so I really appreciate because I think most of us really want to be in relationship, we want to be in connection, and we want to make an impact but we're so busy trying to accumulate things that we're just spinning that hamster wheel. No, I get it. I get it. And speaking of impact, now you say that emotions impact our financial decisions. So how so? Well, you know, we make financial decisions many, many, many times a day. We're trying to decide, are we going to buy that expensive outfit so people think we look cool? Are we going to not spend any money so people don't judge us? Uh, do we want to appear successful? Like when I go to work, am I going to make my lunch or am I going to eat out with my friends at the expensive restaurant? If we're eating out with a group of people, um, do we split the bill or do I only pay for what I paid for because I didn't have the wine, right? And so there's all these emotional feelings that come up that are internal. We don't often name them, but we're emotionally making decisions on how we're going to be viewed, and that's how we spend our money. We either don't spend it or we spend it based on how we think people will perceive us. You know, I, I can totally agree with you, Bob. And, you know, <laughs> as I was thinking of questions to ask you, and then when I thought of that question, I thought about the times where, you know, maybe I did not go out to dinner with family members or friends because I was like, you know what, I just don't have the money. But then I would feel bad about it. Or the times, you know, I actually skipped out on birthday parties that my kids were invited to because I just couldn't purchase a gift. But then at the same time, when I tell people to come to my kids' birthday parties, I'm like, don't worry about a gift. My kids don't need anything. Your presence is the gift enough. But then I turn around and I... (laughs) <laughs> right? We, we, don't, we don't even follow our, our same advice, right? <laughs> and no, we don't. We don't. So I could, I could totally see that, that, you know, we do make a lot of decisions financially based upon our emotions. And I don't even know if we can get away from that. 
Well, I don't think we can. I don't think we fully can, but I think if we can become aware of them, then we can at least manage them. So I'm not saying that we overcome them, but if I know that I get really angry or I get really sad around certain financial purchases, then I can at least get support around it or have somebody else make the purchase. I can do things to uh, mitigate the impact. That makes so much sense. I guess that leads us to you talk about financial therapy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yep. what, why do we need financial therapy? And I guess you kind of just answered perhaps, you know, why we need financial therapy, what, but what encompasses financial? I mean, is it like going to a regular therapist? <laughs> like well, it is. Or? Well, it is. I mean, I think it really starts with that I think most of us struggle at some point with, you know, am I enough? Am I good enough? Do I deserve to have success? Or why don't I have success? And, and, and you know, we, a lot of people will say, oh, I want to be wealthy and I want to be successful. And then I ask people, what do you think of rich people? Oh, they're evil, they're greedy, they're selfish, right? So we put ourselves in, in these binds. And, you know, money can play into our goodness, our relationships, our spirituality, our sexuality, health, or having healthy boundaries or unhealthy boundaries. I know in my family, my grandparents used money as a way of saying, I love you, and if you behave well, I'll give you more money, and if you misbehave, I will, I'll take it away. So there was manipulation. And, and so we have all these unconsciously implanted beliefs that we're just not aware of, and we're carrying them that we may have carried for several generations. And financial therapy gives us an insight into our internal story, and and it helps us to um, have the awareness to decide to do things differently if we don't like what we're currently doing. So then it becomes a choice. We're proactively making decisions instead of just being a victim of, like, it never works out for me. We just become conscious and intentional in the way we deal with our finances. Now, that that makes so much sense, and, and I guess I never really thought about money being used as a manipulation tool because I when you were talking about that just now I thought about I can remember when you know grandparents my grand you know give you money for a good grade mm-hmm. <laughs> right you know and um and my parents however like they weren't trying to give me money for grades you know they were like well that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to make an A and I realized now right. here I am uh, as a mom and I don't give my kids great money for grief, but then their grandparents, who are my parents, <laughs> are like giving right. them money for grief. It's like, wait a minute, you know? So, uh, you know, <laughs> and that's very interesting how we, we tie money to good, to, you know, if you do a certain thing or certain behaviors, um, we're going to automatically reward you with money when sometimes you should just do things because you should just do them. <laughs> that's right. That's right, absolutely. But there, but there is a lot of manipulation with money, and you know, I wasn't aware of it when I was younger, and then later on I was able to see, oh my gosh, my grandparents are manipulating me, and if I don't behave a certain way, they get angry, and then they don't give me money. <laughs> and you know, when I was younger, I'm like, hey, if you want to give me lots of money and tell me you love me, I'll take all the money and put it in the bank. That's awesome. Um, but as an adult, I, you know, I can see um, a little bit of sadness in there in that at least with my grandparents, that they didn't feel confident enough that we, they were just lovable as they were. How exactly would you describe a healthy relationship with money without the manipulation, without uh, yeah. the deception? 
or the feeling, you know, guilted into being benevolent for whatever reason, because I know that happens as well. People pull on your heartstrings to get money out of you. Yeah. Um, you know, but then at the same time, you know, it's okay that if you do have the financial stability or the ability to be benevolent or to help people out or because you have been successful financially. So how would you describe right. a healthy relationship with money? So I think it's a couple of things. I think the first thing a healthy relationship is learning to be happy with what we have instead of being unhappy about what we don't have. Being able to say, you know what, I've got some amazing things. I've been a lot of places in the world. We have it way better. Even in my worst days, I have it a whole lot better than some of the people in their best days. And so being able to say, you know what, this is where I am right now, and it may or may not change, but I'm okay with what I have, and I'm grateful. So I think that's a start. And then just having a, having a healthy conscious relationship doesn't make you greedy or selfish. It just helps you be informed. And when you're informed, you can have clear boundaries, and you can say, yeah, I can't really afford to take that trip with everybody this year because I'm still paying off my mortgage, or I'm clearing up some debt, or I just don't have that kind of money at the moment, and, and then not taking yourself out because you're actually just being really clear about I can give you money, I can't give you money, instead of falling into that manipulation or, or not having a self of sense enough to say, oh my God, okay, I better do this, or what are they going to think of me? But being able to say, no, I'm still a good person, um, and this doesn't work for me. So you know, clear boundaries come when you're starting to have a healthy relationship with money, I think. Now, I, I agree with you, Bob. Um, you know, as, as I go along in life and I do achieve certain, you know, successful um, benchmarks, and, of course, you know, people in your family, they look at you and they think, oh, wow, you know, she's really successful. And then, of course, that's when the hands are out, you know, are extended and, you know, can you help me out? Can you help me out? But I, I can say that what you mentioned, the boundaries, I, one thing I've been proud of myself lately is just setting those boundaries and letting people know, you know, I will, I can help if I can. But um, I know my grandmother, she told me the number one thing is, you know, never give money away that you expect back. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you, if you hand it out and you're expecting it back, then that means that you, you, you can't hand it out. You didn't need to hand it out in the first place. And so by doing that, I, I've learned to kind of, you know, set some boundaries by saying, you know, to, to a family member, if they ask me for money, I'm like, you can borrow up to $50 from me and never, you know, and never have to pay me back. But at the, at, once you hit $200, that's it. Like that, and you never pay yeah. me back, then, you know, no, because after that point, you're taking advantage of me. Yeah, and I think, and some people, so many people are afraid to have those clear boundaries, and it's it's so important to be able to draw that line and say, this is what I'm willing to take on, and the rest is you. <laughs> You're going to have to take that on. That's not mine. Right. And it's not our responsibility to take care of everybody else in the world if we're not able to take care of ourselves first. I mean, I always talk about put your oxygen mask on first, but that also has to do with finances, uh, with family and friends. It, absolutely. And I, I mean, I can tell you myself personally, um, you know, when I was younger and my parents got divorced, my mom, whether it was joking, whether whatever reason she said, you know, Bob, you're going to have to make a lot of money so that your siblings and I can live the life we deserve. Now I have four siblings. And I thought, well, I don't like that. Why do I have to do it? And so I started um, unconsciously 
getting rid of all my money, keeping myself broke so that any time my mom or my siblings said, hey, can we have some money? I'm like, oh, I'm broke. And until I could get clear with the boundaries and say, yeah, I can earn money and I don't have to give it all away to make myself feel good, then I was able to clearly say, yeah, I'm having success. Yes, I have money in the bank. And no, I'm not giving it all to you. If you want lots of money in your bank, you're going to have to go out and do something. I'll help when I can when it's my choice. No, that's, that's it. Setting those boundaries. Setting those boundaries is so important. Okay, so yeah. with our children, because I know that that seems to be a, a common mistake is that we forget to teach our children about money and then they become adults. And then that's when we learn <laughs> how to manage their money. Yeah. That's right. Through trial and error, right? <laughs> we go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. And I think, <laughs> no, it's, it's like by then it's almost too late, right? The habits have been formed. And so for me, the way to start with kids is the first thing is teaching kids about delayed gratification not instant gratification. Um, there was this great Stanford marshmallow study where kids, if they didn't eat the marshmallow right away, if they waited you know, 30 minutes or an hour, they could get two marshmallows or three marshmallows. And they followed these kids through um, a period in their lives and found that the kids that learned how to appreciate delayed gratification were much more successful in life, and the people that needed instant gratification were constantly looking to be fed, to be nurtured. But it can be something as simple as this. One of the things I love to help people do is just start with a glass jar for saving money because the kids can see in the glass jar as the money starts to build up. And when your kid says, hey, I want an ice cream or I want a new toy or I want this or that, you can say, great, here's, we're going to take some money out of your jar and I'll match it or I'll pay 50, you know, 60%, you've got to pay 40 whatever. You negotiate that. And then they actually feel the impact of that jar losing a little bit of money, or if they do something good, watching the jar get filled up. And in that way, they can actually see and feel it in real time. And then the other thing I would say is, when you're working with your kids, be their ally and their advocate, right? Teach them, don't shame them. So that if, if a kid says, oh, I really want this toy, well, honey, you know what? Mommy's got to pay the rent this month. And if things are a little bit tight, and this isn't going to be the month that it happens, but maybe you know, we can figure out a plan. I remember I was, in a, I was in a toy store, and it was February, and this kid, he was maybe four years old, was telling his mom, I want this toy, I want this toy. And his mom turned to him and said, that's it. I'm calling Santa Claus as soon as we get home. You're not getting anything next Christmas. Now, this is February. He's got to wait 10 months. And the kid was just screaming, please don't, call, please don't call Santa, please don't call Santa. And I thought, man, that is cruelty. Because instead of actually just explaining to the kid, I don't have the money, or whatever the reasons were, or you can't have everything every time you want it, she basically went to, I'm going to tell Santa Claus. And, and that's just not constructive. I think we have to teach our children and treat them like young adults so that they can actually rise to the occasion. Right, so and basically, she she probably ended up giving them stuff for Christmas anyway, which makes it she probably did more. anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. So Santa came anyway, <laughs> but right. you know, you're right. Yeah, but you had a traumatized well, kid for you know the next month. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So all right, so that's. So thanks for that. As far as like with teaching our children. So when you're yeah. in college, what? to be your aim as far as money? Well, you know, I think there's a couple things. Right before you go to college, I think it's important to ask yourself, 
do I need to spend $50,000 on this education? Um, could I get it at a community college or somewhere else that wouldn't cost me as much? Can I go to a state school versus a private? Can I get scholarship? How much debt do I want to incur you know, and for how long? So I think that that's the first question as we go into college is trying to figure out what we really want to take on because I know people that will spend $100,000 on an education only do, um, decide that they want to be you know, a greeter at Walmart, which there's nothing wrong with that, but why would you spend $100,000 and create all this debt if, that's not re if you're not really going into something that's going to pay that money back? And then I think when you're in college, it's, it's depending on if you live on, on campus or whether you're, you're living at home, um, it's easy to get caught up with your friends of, oh, let's go out and let's go partying, let's go drinking, let's go... Um, I mean, in my day, you could drink it, and it, 21 was the drinking age, so people could drink at school. And, you know, there's this, there's this pressure to, like, you know, um, be popular with your friends. And so looking at um, how do I want to spend my money and being, like, having a budget and, and just being co uh, conscious of, of where, we, where we spend our money and making sure that it's in alignment with what our long-term goals are at any age. Okay. All right. And so in your 20s, so now you've graduated from college. I mean, now you're mm -hmm. in your 20s. So what do you think should be the aim as far as money with someone in their 20s? So someone in their 20s, um, the first thing I would look at is, do I have student debt? And if I have student debt, I want to get rid of that as soon as I can. Um, if I have student debt or I don't have student debt, the second thing I want to do is I want to start saving money. So one of the biggest things that people say to me later in life is, gosh, I wish I had started putting money in an IRA. Gee, I wish I had started saving money when I was in college because I had all this extra money and I just blew it. I didn't see the value. And so if you can start to develop that habit of, you know what, I'm putting 10% away, or before I go out on a Friday night, I open my wallet and take out all my $5 bills and I put them in a jar, um, and, and find ways to advocate for your future. And it's important – you know, what happens is a lot of times people get out of college, and now all of a sudden they're making money that they weren't making before. So now all of a sudden, oh, I need a new couch for the apartment. Oh, I need to get a fancier car. Try not to, like, blow the budget just because you're making more money. Try to keep living um, within reason. I mean, okay, yeah, get some furniture, but maybe you don't have to buy the top-end couch. Like, just still try to live within your means. One of the things that happens with a lot of my clients in entertainment where they become a TV uh, series regular and they go from making $50,000 a year to making a half a million dollars a year, I try to tell them, don't act like you're making $500,000 a year because the TV show may, show may not last. Keep living on $50,000. you are doing quite fine. So learning to live, live within your means while you're younger will help you to maintain that habit as you get older and as you make more money. Um, but money comes and goes. And so the more you can just keep putting some of that away for, for travel or for a rainy day or for buying a house, uh, just get in the practice of putting some money aside for yourself and for your future. Okay, so now, of course, you know where I'm going with this, 30s and 40s. So now you want to really be maximizing your 401ks. You be, want to be putting money into pensions and all that kind of stuff because these are theoretically your biggest earning years. And so you want to take all that money that you can make while you've got all the energy and, and put as much away and, and still live a good life. I'm not saying starve yourself. Don't live like you're living in a depression. Um, but but just be really smart about your money. Um, but really, the focus should be starting to put money away for the future on a sort of accelerated level. 
and if 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 owning a house is is one of your goals, then then start saving for that. I think once you hit your 30s, if not sooner, you need to sit down and start a budget. And then you also need to think about what are my long-term goals? Where do I want to be in 20 years? Where do I want to be in 30 years? Do I want to own a house? Do I want to travel? Do I want to have a boat? Do I want a cabin in the woods? And actually then start changing your financial spending habits to be more in alignment with what you're saying your long-term goals and what your long-term values are. And then finally, 50 and beyond. So once you get to your 50s, you want to start to be a little more conservative with your money. You don't want to take as much risk um, because you have less time to make it back. So that's a great time to, if you haven't already, sit down with a financial advisor or a financial expert and start to look at um, what age do I want to retire at? Um, what do I want to be able to continue to have in my golden years? And, and then actually start – it doesn't mean you have to start going, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be out of a job and I'm going to be retired. But now is the time to really start reflecting on where – 20 years from now I'm going to be 70. I'm going to be 80. How long do people live in my family? Um, if, if people are living to 100, okay, then I need to factor that in. Um, or do I, have, do I have kids that I can go live with? Or do I want to move to a state that doesn't have an income tax? And start actually thinking about where do I want to spend the last years and how do I want to have an impact? What do I want my legacy to be? Wonderful. Bob, I really appreciate you. I have one last question, and it kind of it doesn't okay. really have anything to do with what we've been talking about. <laughs> right. So my question is, who is your favorite superhero and why? <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So I, I think I would say my – favorite superhero is probably Thor. Um, and I, the reason I like Thor is because, you know, even when he shouldn't, he sees the good in people. Like, you know, he trusts his brother <laughs> when he shouldn't. Um, and he gives people the benefit of the doubt, and even when it's to his own detriment. So I, I want to be able to see the good in people. And so in that respect, Thor gives me hope because even when he knows better, he tries to see the good in people. Um, and he's sort of a badass, so I think that's sort of cool. Um, but I, I would have to also then add, though, because there's just been a lot of hype around this more recently, and it's probably one of my favorite shows was Black Panther. I think I watched, I've watched it at least three times, and that was a freaking awesome movie. And he was just so amazing. <laughs> um, so he's got some competition with Thor. <laughs> I know you asked for one, but I had, I had <laughs> he's pretty awesome. No, most of the Marvel characters are pretty awesome. <laughs> they are. They are. <laughs> well, they Bob, are. thank you for your time. I really appreciate you. Can you do me a favor? Can you let everyone Absolutely. know how Yeah, can you let everyone know how they can purchase a copy of your book, listen to your podcast or seek your services? Absolutely. So, the book is available, The Money Nerve Navigating the Emotions of Money is available on Amazon. It's also available through our website, themoneynerve.com. Um, we've just developed a new online course called Mastering the Emotions of Money, which is a 12-week course that guides you through your financial history. Um, and I'm also a host of Money You Should Ask, which is a conversation podcast with people about money beliefs, money blocks, and life choices. I talk with celebrities, everyday folks, lawyers, poets, actors, dog walkers, and um, 
you can reach me through the Money Nerve, Bob at themoneynerve.com. I love people reaching out to me. People do reach out, and we're more than happy to give people support and guidance. And if people are interested in our accounting services and all that stuff, happy to share that with them. Um, but we really just want to hold a safe space for people to feel non-judged um, as they explore their Money Nerve. Well, Bob, thank you for sharing your expertise and your wisdom. You are such a great guest, and I really enjoyed this conversation with you. Any last words of encouragement for the listeners as they strive for more? Yes, I would say figure out what's important to you in terms of finances, in terms of integrity, in terms of legacy, and then start making financial choices that serve that bigger picture um, that you have set up for yourself. It's different for every person, but be willing to be uncomfortable, be willing to have difficult conversations, and be willing to, to be in this for the long haul. The relationship with money is not a one-time solve it and it's all done. This is a lifetime relationship, so nurture it, love it, and make it work. Truly amazing. Well, Bob, I wish you and your family nothing but blessings and abundance in your future. Please take care and continue to strive for more. Thank you so much. It's been awesome being on your show. A healthy relationship with money is so important. Even if you have no desire to be super wealthy or rich, you still need to have money to survive on a daily basis. Money problems can show up and overpower us really quickly. So learn the best strategies to stay ahead of your money and not let it get ahead of you. I need your help. Go to my LinkedIn page and endorse me for podcasting. If we, are not co if we are not connected on LinkedIn, we should be. Send me a connection request. Continue to strive for more and live your best life now. See you in the next episode. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 